Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For three weeks since Laura Johnston joined us on this podcast. She says she'll be back tomorrow. We uh, heard from her overnight. She had listened to our episode yesterday when we talked about Trump and his Nazi talk, and she had just visited the Anne Frank house, so it was poignant for her. I'm sure she'll have something to say about that upon her return. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin and Leila Tassi. We got some stories to talk about. A group representing homeless people tried to block the Ohio voter law that requires photo IDs. Monday brought a decision in the case. Lisa, what was it? Yeah, the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless is one of several plaintiffs in this federal lawsuit, also joined by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, the Ohio Alliance for Retired Americans, and the Union Veterans Council. So federal judge Donald Nugent granted a summary judgment request in this 2023 lawsuit. Um, the, the suit protested the requirement for a photo ID at polling places, also limiting drop boxes in counties and shortening early voting times, also known as House Bill 458. Um, the suit said that the bill disenfranchises homeless, military, elderly, young voters, and black voters, and it's really unnecessary due to the rarity of voter fraud. The summary judgment request came from Secretary of State Frank LaRose, the Ohio uh, GOP party, and others. Um, they say that House Bill 458 changes are common sense and minor and affects only a tiny fraction of Ohio voters. Nugent apparently agreed in his 46-page opinion. He says it's difficult to imagine how photo ID laws imposes more than a minimal burden. I, I, I completely agree with the judge on this. We talked about this very issue on our editorial board yesterday. The mm -hmm. idea that a photo ID requirement is onerous has just gotten so far beyond common sense and logic. We need a photo ID to do just about anything. The state has made it fairly simple for anybody to get one. And yet we keep having people saying, oh, oh, this is this is too onerous. And polls have shown Ohioans have no problem with the photo ID requirement because mm -hmm. everybody uses it all the time. I, I, I just don't understand why this keeps being the rub for voting rights advocates. We have some voter rights issues in this state that are clear. The, the blocking of voting on weekends up until the final one and the re refusal to allow counties like Cuyahoga to have multiple drop boxes. That's just ridiculous. It's aimed at reducing the vote. But the photo ID, should we should stop arguing about that because Ohioans feel pretty strongly that you should have one. Well, and I've never understood how people said it was, it made it hard for certain demographics. Like I understand homeless people. I totally get that. But, and the military too, because a lot of them are voting from overseas, but you know, the elderly and young voters and black voters, I'm not sure, you know, why that would be a burden on those groups. 
You know, Ted Dieden had a column over the weekend where he was castigating the Republican Party for overreach with multiple issues last year. And we've seen the same thing on the Democratic side with this voting rights bill that they're trying to get put in that that, uh, Dave Yost rejected because the, the writing was all bad. And nobody's really thinking in moderation anymore. Nobody's thinking in terms of common sense. The voters showed last year that they're common sense with all the issues that were placed before them. They went down kind of the middle in common sense. This is not common sense. I I appreciate Nugent for just body slamming this thing because it really had no legitimate grounds. And we ought to focus on the real issues about voting. Frank LaRose does not want us to easily vote. He wants to squelch the Democratic vote as much as he can. He's the worst secretary of state we've ever seen. So we probably do need some guardrails in the Constitution for that. This was not the way to go. So salute the Nugent for making the quick decision. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, this is the most outrageous story we've seen in a long time. It goes full outrage with what we learned yesterday. Another transgender candidate is getting kicked off the ballot. Layla, who is it? And is this case different now from the one we've been discussing? The candidate is Ariane Childry of Auglaize County. Childry is a Democrat and is seeking to unseat Republican State Representative Angie King of Mercer County in House District 84. That district covers Mercer County and parts of Auglaize and Dark Counties. So on Friday, Mercer County Republican Party Chair Robert Hibner asked the Mercer County Board of Elections to reject Childry's campaign petitions for pretty much the same reason that candidate Vanessa Joy was disqualified from the ballot last week by the Stark County Board of Elections. And that's because both of these candidates failed to follow a very obscure law from the 1990s that requires candidates to list on their petitions all names that they used for the past five years. So that would include what's known as their dead names for for trans people, that is the name that they went by before they transitioned. So in Childry's case, the Mercer County Democratic Party is challenging it with another state law that says only members of the same political party as the as the, the candidate can challenge petition signatures during a primary. So the really outrageous thing here is that not only does the petition give really insufficient space to write the names that they that they say the law requires but the petition barely the petition doesn't even tell the candidate to list those names there is no line that says list all names that you you know exactly what the law is supposed to say furthermore the 33 page candidate re- requirement guide that tells candidates exactly how to run for office and what to how to fill these papers out doesn't mention this law at all so how in the world is this fair? How are candidates supposed to know about this when even it seems Secretary of State Frank LaRose's office, which publishes that guidebook, wasn't even aware of it? I, I, I cannot believe this case. I, the, but, you know, we, we kept saying, what does the form say? The, the guidebook, the big ca- candidate handbook says nothing about it. But was there a spot on the form that said, please list any name you've used in the last five years? And there's not. It just How says in the name. World it just you tells hold- you to list your name. How, you can't hold a can. Look, that'd be like having a law that says you're required to 
to list your employment on your driver's license application. And if you don't, you lose your license for life, right? And there's no form on the application for your driver's license to do that. So you fill out the application, filling out the forms that are there. And then because of this law, nobody knows about, you lose your license for life. You can't do that. If, if it's a requirement, it's got to be on the form. These people should be put back on the ballot immediately. And this law should be rejected outright because there is no way for a person to know about this. This is one of the most scandalous things I've seen in voter right. law now. How do you do this? Yeah, right, right. You know, and Children made a really good point kind of debunking that argument about how listing all of your prior names on the petition is informative for voters in an important way. She said that really, you, you don't have to put those names on the ballot. So even if, if she had known to add her original name to her petitions, only the 50 people who signed for her and the Board of Elections would have even seen it. So, so Well, I don't. I don't buy that because elections get covered. Um, mm -hmm. People do news stories about them. And I, I, we've talked about it. I think the voters d deserve to know your record. So if you've switched your name in the past couple of years and you had activity that might be important to voters in the previous three, they ought to be able to find what it What are the out. rules around your how your trust. name appears on the ballot, on the actual ballot? Yeah, but you're presuming people go into the ballot without doing research. And some voters do, but a lot of voters don't. A lot of voters are looking for information. But it doesn't matter. You can't do this without telling them. It, it is, I, and look, you and I talked about this yesterday. I wonder how many times this has happened in the past where somebody's changed their name, but it wasn't on the form, they didn't fill it out, and nobody did anything. This is anti-transgender. Somebody went looking for these people anti-transgender. This is discriminatory. This should be reversed immediately and they should be restored to the ballot. This is Frank LaRose should be speaking up on this. He right. should be saying, look, this is bad. We should have that on the form. We have failed. It's unfair to these people. Right. He'll never do it because mm -hmm. it's Frank LaRose, but he should be standing up for these candidates because it's the right thing to do. You know, also, I just want to note one more time that this law, for no justifiable reason at all, exempts married people from listing their name before marriage. And of course, when this law was passed in the 90s, only straight people were allowed to get married. So it was a loophole that benefited only straight married people. And I, I just, I, I can't, this is astounding. Yeah, but it, but it doesn't matter because it wasn't on the form anyway. Even if, even if married people had to list their name, they wouldn't have known that because there's no place anywhere that they are informed of that. And you can't say ignorance of the law is your problem. If there's an application form approved by the Secretary of State for you to be a candidate, it has to have all the required information on it. This is a failing of all the elections officials for not having that on the form, if it's the law. Amazing story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This next story is a surprise given how much time we spend talking about the folks <laughs> in the Ohio legislature. Lisa, why does 2023 stand out for the less than august body of lawmakers? Well, to be fair, Chris, um, a lot of our talk has been on the negative side of the legislature. <laughs> so, but yeah, Cleveland.com and, and the Plain Dealer, our crack data analysts, look at the state archives going back to 1955 to determine the annual number of bills that are passed during each legislative session. So, despite a Republican supermajority, only 16 bills 
were signed into law last year. That's the lowest since the Eisenhower administration, 1955 or thereabouts. Back in 2009, um, when we had a split legislature uh, party-wise, 17 bills were passed. In 2019, 24 bills were passed, but then uh, that was during that House and Senate uh, leader feud. So in the previous 40 years, Ohio averaged about 100 bills passed and signed into law per year. On odd number of years in this century, the 21st century, they were averaging about 52 bills a year. When asked why they've been so unproductive, you know, some people have said divisive politics, term limits that are removing experienced lawmakers from the from the state house, the House Speaker fight between Jason Stevens and Derek Marin, and also the August issue one referendum. Um, a, a spokesman for House Speaker Jason Stevens and Senator Matt Huffman said, well, quantity doesn't necessarily equal quality. I, th- there is something to that, right? If you, if you believe that Ohio passes too many laws and too many unneeded regulations, then you the, the, the dearth of legislation isn't a terrible thing. It's just these people spend a lot of time down there. What are they doing? I mean, what they're doing mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. all of their game playing and their polarization and their nonsense about transgenders. I mean, if you look at the way they've behaved over the past year, it's pretty reprehensible. But the not passing new laws, if we don't need new laws, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, Huffman did point out that the Senate passed 57 bills. The House passed 83. You know, of course, only a handful became law. But it's interesting that both sides of the aisle maybe are saying that term limits are a problem because Senator Nikki Antonio, the Democrat from Lakewood, says, you know, term limits are pushing out veterans that are more open to compromise. And as we've said and talked about, all these newly elected candidates or, you know, candidates coming up are, you know, more extreme. Yeah. People open a compromise like Bill Seitz. I mean, come on. We had a whole editorial this weekend saying we should be exploring term limits. The problem with that argument is voters love term limits. to, To convince voters that taking away term limits will be a good thing. There's poster children all over the legislature that are the the proof against that. Patton is already switching body. If we had true term limits, you could serve in one body for whatever the terms are, and then you're gone. We don't have that. They serve in the House. They go to the Senate. They go back to the House. I mean, the president of the Senate believes he's going to be the Speaker of the House next time around. So I, I just don't see Ohio voters ever pulling these out because once these guys get in there, they're terrible. I mean, what's his name? Uh, Jerry Serino. Wouldn't you love to have term limited him out by now? He's been a disaster as a state senator running again for reelection. Yeah, but, you know, and as Layla can attest, I mean, we've sat through dozens of, you know, candidate endorsement interviews during election years, which we'll be doing again, by the way. But, you know, when you have a supermajority, you get Democrats that say, hey, I've never run for office before. Let me run for Congress. You know, so and then some of them get in like Elliot Forehand. So, of course, he's a state lawmaker. But, you know, yeah, I don't know. I'm against term limits, but I think voters are the term limits. But I understand why others don't feel that way. I would agree with you if we got rid of the party primaries. I think Mm -hmm. the problem with our system is that the parties largely pick our candidates. We don't have a say. So when you get to November, you pick the lesser of the two evils and the, the party primaries were created 
to get rid of the party boss system a century ago, but the parties have completely corrupted the system. And if we could get rid of those, then I'm all for it. The voters should decide while the parties are in control. I'm not against term limits because at least we get rid of some of these bums after they go in and get paid off by the utility companies and make their money and disappear. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Former Ohio Republican Party chair Matt Borges had repeated opportunities to keep his prison sentence to a minimum by cooperating with the feds. He didn't. And he now sits in prison for his role in the HB6 bribery and corruption case. Layla, what's his latest move to reduce his term now that he's missed all of the easy opportunities? Yeah, Borges, of course, was was convicted of engaging in a racketeering conspiracy back in March in a trial alongside ex-Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder. He's serving five years in prison, though we learned eventually that he turned down a plea deal that would have let him serve only six months in exchange for cooperating in the case. But now Borges has filed an appeal. He's arguing that prosecutors failed to produce evidence to satisfy his constitutional right of due process under the law. He also argued that the trial judge, U.S. District Judge Timothy Black, erred in his instructions to jurors, evidentiary rulings, and other decisions. Borges asked the appellate judges to either issue a finding that the evidence against him was legally insufficient to support a racketeering conviction or to reverse the conviction due to procedural errors and remand his case for a new trial. The attorneys for the federal government have some time to respond to Borges's request before they before the judges make a decision. You got to really look at what he did and say it was moronic. They didn't want him. They wanted everybody else and they were making a deal. And when you go against the federal government, when they've got you and they had the evidence, clearly, that's why he got convicted. You're going down. I mean, it's the federal government when they when they've got the evidence on you, they're relentless. We've seen it over and over again. They just keep coming at you. And if you don't make the deal when you're guilty, the punishment is far worse than if you make the deal. I don't get him. He'd be out by now, right? He's already served six months. Yeah, I, think. I was trying to figure that out. Yeah, it's been over that, right? He'd be out. <laughs> it's a yeah, shame. The, the ego of these guys thinking they can beat it, it just boggles the mind. When the feds have got you, the only thing to do is make the best deal you can. And they offered him a sweetheart deal. I still don't know why he didn't take it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, we have one Trump sycophant endorsing another in the latest news from Ohio's Senate election. Lisa, what is it? Yes, our favorite uh, Congressman Firebrand Jim Jordan has endorsed Cleveland businessman Bernie Moreno for the U.S. Senate primary. And of course, he's going up against long-term Senator Sherrod Brown. In a statement from Jordan posted to Moreno's campaign website, Jordan said that he was proud to stand with President Trump and J.D. Vance in endorsing Moreno. He says he's a political outsider who's lived the American dream. His perspective, grit, and conservative values will serve Ohio well. And of course, this is going to be a very closely watched election due to the narrow Democratic majority in the Senate. And because of that, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee announced an eight-figure investment in grassroots organizing efforts both here in Ohio and in Montana, where Democratic Senator John Tester is facing re-election. So this money, uh, you know, is going to, they don't say what the figure is, it's just eight figures, but it's going to pay for field organizing and training, outreach to communities of color and other specific constituencies, and also data and analytics. It's amazing that 
this appears to work. Just puppets for Trump. They're not they're not voting their own thoughts. They're not being elected leaders that go in and make decisions because they're thoughtful about it. They just do whatever Trump says. That's what we got. So we got Jim Jordan, a Trump sycophant, pledges fealty 100% to the former president, not to America. Bernie Moreno, same thing. He's just a Trump puppet. And these guys get together and go, I guess that we should see Frank LaRose eventually drop out of this thing because he's gotten, yeah. getting, despite his his attempt to be the chief Trump sycophant of Ohio, he's not getting any traction because he blew it so badly on the issues last year. Well, I haven't seen any ads from him. I mean, we've been seeing Moreno ads for a month now, you know, and uh, then Dolan, I started seeing Matt Dolan ads, you know, about two or three weeks ago. And I, I, I can't wait for the primary to be over because he keeps using that cut Moreno does of Trump saying, we love Ohio, we love Bernie Moreno. And I'm like, ugh. If yeah. I have to hear that again, I'll strangle myself. It's just mind-boggling <laughs> that Bernie Moreno could be the candidate. Because anybody in Cleveland knows him. I mean, he he was not this guy. And now to become a senator, he's completely changed who he is. Is that who you really want serving the state? You're listening to Today in Ohio. Are Cuyahoga County children underserved when it comes to hospital services? Layla, why is Akron Children's Hospital planting a flag in Cuyahoga County? Akron Children's Pediatrics has 40 locations and more than 200 providers across Northeast Ohio, and they're opening this new pediatric primary care office in Mayfield Heights on Landerbrook Drive. This will be actually their second office of this type, with the other one located in Beechwood. This office will be staffed by five doctors. They'll be open from 8.30 to 5, five days a week, and they're going to provide primary care services for kids from birth through their teenage years. In the hospital statement, uh, they said that uh, they chose this location because um, the market was good for it, and they were looking to grow their patient base in, in, the, in that neck of the woods. And adding those services, it seemed dovetailed nicely with a growing number of specialties at their Beachwood Health Center. I mean, heaven knows we do need more pediatric uh, care providers. Um, I mean, personally, though, I think that we need more specialties. You know, we need more of the behavioral health um, and, and other things like that. Those waiting lists are, are onerous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder, though, whether Akron proper would feel that it's completely served for its children's needs. Yeah. Or right. if they look at this and think, I can't get an appointment for six weeks to see you. Why are you going into other territory that is served by other providers? Is this, is this the best thing for the community? Maybe it is. Maybe you're right. There's not enough services in Cuyahoga County. Akron Children's Hospital sees an opening. They're, they're, a very, very good hospital. They have one of the best reputations going. So it brings this high quality service into Cuyahoga County and maybe you can get a faster appointment. I just don't know is if, if this is really best for our region. It's a great question. I don't know. When you go to make an appointment now, how long does it take you to get one? Well, oh my God. Well, it depends. No, I mean like children. I said, the specialties, specialties, I mean, when you need a doctor for an illness, we use the Cleveland Clinic because my husband is a nurse there, so we were part of their employee health plan. Um, but when we call for an appointment, we can get in pretty quickly if it's something that, you know, the kid needs a COVID, COVID test or something like that. Um, they're, they're pretty good about it. But I, again, it's those specialties, behavioral health, 
We took one of our kids to see someone. It took months. I mean, I can't even tell you. By the time we got in, our issue was over. <laughs> we had dealt with it on our own. Or, you know, another one of our kids is uh, we, we were taking her to see an endocrinologist. It's a three-month waiting list. So it's like, you know, she needs some blood work And Lisa, you're still done. seeing that too, right? What's that? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, and of course I don't have any kids, but yeah, I mean, I, it's like two or three months if I'm lucky to get to see my primary care provider, my yeah. endocrinologist, I make those a year ahead. So, you know, God help me if I have to miss an appointment, never try to miss an appointment if you can. Yeah. I had that same experience. Somebody's trying to schedule a meeting when I had a, a six month ahead appointment with the dermatologist. It's like, I'm no way going to make that meeting. I'm going to the dermatologist. Mm -hmm. It's become so hard to set it up that if you postpone it, it's another six months. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We had a lot of questions last week when we discussed discovery of credit card skimmers at Giant Eagle locations, including some in Northeast Ohio. Published the story Monday to answer some reader questions about these contraptions. Lisa, what did we learn? Yeah, and it's actually required reading, and there are great photographs showing pictures of some of these what they're called skimming devices. They're not uncommon, um, but they're usually found outside, like outside ATMs or gas pumps, because they're they can be installed without somebody catching you. But they are finding them in stores, as we found in uh, in Giant Eagle, and the FICO Credit Score Company says that 160. 1,000 debit, debit cards were compromised by skimmers in 2022. That was up 368% from the prior year. And it costs people about a billion dollars and up annually. So these devices come in many forms. Uh, the Parma Police Department says the one in their Giant Eagle store was a plastic shell that basically went over the card reader at the register. Now, Giant Eagle is not providing photos of the skimmers that they found, but they sent the ones that they had only only red cards, magnetic strip. So not the tap to pay or the chip reader where you insert the short end of the card in. He said, or, you know, spokespeople say that most people use the insert and the strip. Unfortunately, the magnetic strip is often unencrypted. So it's real easy to steal that information, but they also have shimmers. These are inserted in the chip reader, they can read the encryption and they, or you can have a false front on there that makes it look like it's real. And these things can be installed in seconds, often under a minute. Scammers usually have to retrieve the device to get the stolen information, but now there are some that are transmitting that data wirelessly. And my takeaway from this is that you should probably never again insert a card that everybody should be moving to the tap system, which I'm going to have to talk to Sean about doing a story to explain to mm -hmm. people how to do that, who haven't done it, how to use Apple Pay or tap their card. Right. Because it, you just don't know. These things are so hidden. The scariest one was for the shimmers that it could still be taking your payment while secretly collecting your data and they right. don't use it right away. Right. That they could wait very long before they use it. So you have no idea even when it was stolen. Yeah, the National Retail uh, Federation says that, you know, tap to pay is the safest. And I always tap. I don't like to swipe because it really wears out your card really fast. And they said, you know, the next safest would be using phone payment apps like Apple Pay or Google Pay, like you said. The chip reader is safer than swiping, but not so much since we have shimmers now. And they said, if you want to look for differences, you know, look for color differences between the, the, the parts of the register. Look for torn or missing security labels evidence of tampering, you know, if the 
if the chip reader is blocked and it forces you to swipe, that might be an issue as well. And they also have suggested if you're at like an ATM or a gas pump outside, wiggle the card reader, see if it comes off, see if the parts line up correctly. That would be disconcerting if you wiggled the card reader and it came off. It in came your off. Hand, you'd be like, did I break it? What happened here? <laughs> you're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, we've got time for one more, Layla. So Cleveland's lead paint problem is well known, and a lot of that paint is on windows and doors in old houses. How will a new grant help change that? The city has won a $4.9 million state grant to help landlords tackle this problem. You know, as you said, windows, doors, these are particularly vexing problems for property owners who are trying to mitigate lead paint because while you can paint over the lead in some parts of the house and sort of seal it in, the doors and windows open and close, which causes paint to chip and flake and create lead dust. And that wear and tear just exposes the lead all over again. So trying to seal in the lead problem with a fresh coat of paint often is insufficient to deal with it. So Cleveland has had just a hell of a time getting landlords to comply with the city's 2019 lead safe law that required landlords to certify their pre-1978 rental homes as lead safe. As of September, about 72% of them had totally ignored the law and has haven't registered at all. So the city is guessing that part of the problem is the high cost of taking care of these, these lead hazards. And they're hoping that per, by providing the money to buy new windows and doors, landlords would feel more encouraged to comply and register, take care of that really expensive part of this process. The city intends to focus its efforts on one, two, and three unit rentals because those are more likely to be owned by kind of your mom and pop landlords. And, and that's where compliance is weakest, um, you know, among those smaller properties with few units. So this money comes from the Ohio Department of Development. Originally, it came from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. Um, Mike DeWine had set aside $84 million from the state's ARPA money to address lead specifically, including $17 million just for rental properties. So that's where, where we're getting this, this uh, windfall from. What I love about this is that it removes the lead paint. It doesn't encapsulate right. it. It doesn't seal it. Uh, a lot of the lead efforts in Cleveland are not removal as much as sealing it, which just kicks the can down the road. You got to get it out of there. And by removing those windows and doors, the lead paint is gone mm -hmm. forever. You're listening to Today in Ohio. So, Layla, do we think Laura is going to make it back? Boeing's airliner problem is causing all sorts of airports to have canceled flights. Is she going to make it back? Will she be here tomorrow? <laughs> I hope so, because I've been doing five stories a day on this podcast. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Did you All want right. me to talk about Boeing or are we... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it, it, we've got a bunch of canceled flights at Hopkins because of that, right? Yeah, yeah. 171 Boeing Max 9 aircraft have been grounded after one of those planes was at the center of what sounded like an absolutely terrifying incident that happened last week on, on, on the Alaska Airlines flight. I had to. I went down a deep rabbit hole on this one, because <laughs> looking at like just how awful this must have been for people on that plane that was taken off from from Portland, Oregon, headed to uh, Ontario, California. This door plug in the air, aircraft's fuselage blew out in midair. No one was injured. The plane made it back safely to Portland. But of course, Boeing and the FAA had to take steps to ensure the safety of these aircraft. So they. 
they began this massive inspection process that would take, they estimated, four to eight hours per plane. That ended up causing many flight cancellations across the U.S., including at Hopkins and Cleveland. So United and Alaska Airlines are the primary users of the MAX 9. As of Monday at 10 a.m., United had canceled 220 flights nationwide for the day. That's 8% of their total Alaska Airlines canceled 141 flights, 20% of their total. In Cleveland, United had canceled five flights Monday. That included flights to LA, Orlando, Chicago. So yeah, it had a huge impact. Awful experience for people on that plane. The amazing anecdote out of that, other than watching the video from inside the plane, is that it sucked out an iPhone at you know thousands and thousands of feet in the air, and it was intact when it was found. Oh, really? Yeah, it kept. Yeah. I was reading about how all loose articles were just sucked right out. Yeah. Oh, God, and how yeah. some kid got his shirt sucked off. Oh my God. Yeah, this this would have been terrifying. It, it's one of those things that makes you question why we fly. That's it for the Tuesday episode. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. And like we said, we expect Laura will be back on this podcast on Wednesday. 